Good to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name's Dawson, and uh, I'd love to meet you. Uh, I just say um, I'm one of the, the leaders here, more importantly, one of the members of this church, and it's my joy to be a member. And I'm also a redeemed son of the king, which is a privilege and nothing I can take for granted, and it's quite a mystery to me. And uh, we're going to dive into Acts again. We've been in Acts in a series called The Spirit and the Church. And today we're going to be in Acts 4 and Acts 5, talking about, wait for it, the spirit and hypocrisy. Yay, fun, fun day. You picked a fun day to come. But um, not that we didn't have enough announcements, but I have two more And they're just pertaining to some people on the stage here. And I'll be honest, I'm slightly stalling because I'm waiting for my wife to come in. And we're not pregnant or anything, but it is like a big (laughs) announcement. I don't know where she is. But uh, first of all, James Roddy, thanks for serving us on the the drums. I love that we, in this small community that we have, we have many artists and we keep developing more artists and we're actually releasing an album in the next few weeks, which is exciting. And James, thanks for serving us today on that. And secondly, the man over here on the left that was playing the bass is an engaged man. And he... And he is sitting by his fiancée, Lisa Sheets. And and that is something worth celebrating. That is a a meanwhile story of of great redemption. We love you guys. And I'm like, just want to like cry and pray and and be done and just like go have a meal together. But we do have a meal, and it's in Acts 4 and Acts 5. So, uh, I know this isn't the first time I've shown this picture, but I hope you'll forgive me if I once again bring back a Jones family lore artifact. And that is this picture right here. This this is a slightly fuzzier Dawson. Early marriage, Dawson and Laurel, this is the morning, a Sunday morning, getting ready to, to, to gather with the saints and to enjoy the peace of God. And that's Vivian, our oldest, at about two years old, and Lucia, uh, who's just a few months old there. And um, I, I, I do offer it as a gesture of hope for all you parents in early, early stages, but I also want to... Just, if you can see it, I know it's tiny. Look how many people are gloating in our misery. It's like over 400 people thought, yes, this is why I'm here on the social medias, because of, of the Joneses' pain. And uh, why is it refreshing to see pictures like this? We've talked about this before. Uh, social media, Instagram, it's... To some degree, it's just a gallery of hypocrites. It's just a gallery of pretenders. Um, the reels that you see don't really match up to real life. And right now, like, uh, usually the first comment is like, this is fake. 
or is this fake? Uh, a lot of pretending going on. Why do we do this? We all have Michael Scott syndrome, which is, do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked, I enjoy being liked, but it's not like this compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised, which <laughs> is just amazing. The tendency to put forth an image of me that people will readily accept. The tendency to cover up the real me that I don't want people to potentially reject. That's our tendency to hypocrisy. So yeah, sure, social media is full of hypocrisy, no surprise there. But for many people, their experience is that so is the church. I remember introducing myself to uh, my, uh, uh, my barber when I was pastoring in Eastern Europe and Slovakia. And the first thing after introducing myself as a pastor was he was saying, oh, you're a swindler of grandmas. In his mind, being a pastor was swindling old people out of their money. Like that was his first instinct. A recent Barna study, I think 20, 2019, listing the top five reason that millennials are leaving the church. Reason number one, hypocrisy and irrelevance. And they loop those together and you can see why. Like if there's hypocrisy, immediately it's irrelevant. Like why would I even pay attention? People after getting a whiff of hypocrisy in the church are like, well, I'm out. And I would say, rightly so. It makes sense. About 10 years ago when I was going through a church planning residency, one of our little textbooks was a great book by a guy named Paul David Tripp uh, called Dangerous Calling. And it's about the dangers of pride, of portray portraying something we're not as leaders. And the sad part is that the back cover the endorsements, now, just a few years later, half of the people that endorse the book are not in ministry anymore because of this problem, because of potentially the Michael Scott syndrome. Of course, I can't judge their hearts, but they're no longer in a place where they're leading. The insides often don't match the outsides. The man doesn't quite match the message. So no wonder people are like, I'm out. They won't have it. But here's a twist. Do you know who else won't have it? The Spirit of God. And that's what our slightly strange but incredibly important story from Acts 4 and 5, where we left off last week, is going to go to today. The Spirit of God is the OG church planter. He's set in the DNA for his church, and he won't have pretending. So we're going to read, starting in Acts 4, verse 32. I don't have slides, so you can open up your Bibles to this. And we're going to read the startling story of Ananias and Sapphira. 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully 
at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to any who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. That moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Welcome to Soma Tacoma. (laughs) Sheesh. How are we doing? That's a heavy story. It's pretty straightforward. To some degree, if you're like slightly like me, the initial response to this reading might be, could be just like, really? Like, really? The Bible is full of pretty difficult stories. Hard stuff happening, betrayal, murder, scandal, incest. And not all these people die. Here we have Ananias and Sapphira. They, they bring some money to the church, smudge the numbers a little bit, and they die. So a framing question might be for us, like, why does God care about this so much? Why is this so important? Why so serious? We're going to look at this in three parts. Uh, The beauty of the real thing, part one, beauty of the real thing, the beauty of the church that we all want. Part two, the danger of the fake thing. And then part three is hope for hypocrites. Jesus 
Spirit, Father, thank you that there is hope. We already know that. But we pray that you would illuminate hope for us. And that Spirit, like we talked about a few weeks ago, that you would take your flashlight, help us see the hidden hidden rooms of our heart that maybe we're not even aware of. And bring sweet conviction that leads to change lives, a life of honest vulnerability with this family that you've given us. Teach us out of your word today. Amen. The beauty of the real thing, the church we all want. So before we look at the faking, the fake thing, we're going to look at the real thing. They say uh, that FBI agents, when they're being trained to decipher, to, to be able to identify fake money, they spend time with real money. They spend time studying the real thing. Like they spend time just grabbing like real bills, feeling the weight of it, feeling the texture of it, kind of looking at the transparency. And the more they know the real thing, then they can see the fake thing really quickly. So that's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to look at the real thing because the beginning of the passage that I read, the, the chapter four part, is talking about the real thing. It's talking about what it's meant to be. In chapter four, coming right out of where we left last week where there was this prayer for, for boldness, we get this like response. Here's what it looked like. Chapter four, I do have, I think, slides for some of these verses. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. Don't brush over one in heart and mind. That is a big description. If people were to ask you, like, tell me a little bit about your church family. And you thought for a second, and you're like, you know what I like to say? I'd say, it's amazing. We are of one heart and mind. We are so unified. We're like one beating heart, one, one mind. Extraordinary unity. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. No needy people. Why? Because of great power and powerful grace. You see those phrases in there? Don't get this backwards. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in them. It is by God's power that they are becoming this kind of a community where they have everything in common, one heart and one mind. I want to pause here just to say this, these, these, we, we talked about these passages that kind of do a little zoom out and say like, let me tell you what kind of community this was. There's one in Acts 2. Here's another one in Acts 4. This is not the result of like, determined people getting after it. This is, wow, that's intense. This is, this is not the result of determined people, but dependent people and a determined God doing what he will. We've talked a lot about how to read Acts. You can throw up this, this slide right here. There's one way to read Acts, which I don't think is that helpful, where you read Acts as a missional strategies manual where it's like, oh, okay, give me the checklist. I, I desire for us to be like this authentic church. Give me the checklist. Okay, everything, everything in common. Great. Hospitality. 
It's not the right approach. Because what that is, is a description of a result. It's a description of a transformed missional personality of a person and of a, of a people. What do, I, what do I mean by that? Well, long, like over millennia, there have been attempts to do like mandated communism, right? Whether it's the Marxist approach, long before the Soviets though, in ancient Greece, they, they made a go at it. They thought if we mandate communal property, it's gonna produce a communal spirit in people. Guess what? It never worked. It never worked. But often in churches, in church planting, we can take a similar approach. We can say, we want to be an Acts 2, an Acts 4 type people. We're gonna take this seriously. Everybody, hospitality. Everybody, shared resources. This is not about us getting together, linking arms and saying, let's give it our best shot. It's not about this horizontal agreement between people. It's about a vertical transformation that happened through the spirit of God, waking people up to the glory of the gospel and then responding and say, how could we not live this way? We don't need, this is a lot of what our MC leader kind of vision training tonight is gonna be about. So if you're a leader, if you're an apprentice leader, please come. We don't need clearer missional strategies. We need missional personalities shaped by the power of God. So to have everything in common, to be able to, to have the same heart and mind, this, that is not a standard that we try to live up to. It's the result of a transformed people. Tozer says everything I just tried to say in a much more poetic way in a book called Pursuit of God. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, you know I like a good music metaphor, and 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork, tuning fork, automatically are automatically tuned to each other? 100 pianos tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other as well. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Social religion is performed when private religion is purified. The body, that's the soma, the body becomes stronger as its members become healthier. The whole church of God gains when the members that compose it begin to seek a better and higher life, bowing to the tuner. So this is the beauty of the real thing. This is, this is my point one. I didn't want us to miss. There is this picture. This is what it could look like. But hypocrisy begins, to kind of push Tozer's metaphor, when we begin to tune ourselves to each other in a desire to be accepted, to be in harmony, a false harmony, I would say. So point number two, this is where we're getting into the meat of the passage, the danger of the fake thing, the danger of faking it. Why is hypocrisy in the church so serious? I can't say that without thinking why so serious every time from the dark night, if 
I'm just full of movie quotes and sometimes can't get away from it. What is this? What is hypocrisy? I don't know what kind of connotation it has, kind of religious word. It's an old word. It's a really good word. Uh, it's a Greek word, hypocrites, which in its origin just was used to talk about an actor on a stage. An actor who is, you know, wearing a mask, playing a part on a stage for the praise of an audience. The hypocrite in the church plays an actor, plays the spiritual part, and uses spiritual activity for something it was never intended to win over another, to win over some praise from an audience. So notice, we had the real thing and the fake thing side by side. If you're reading through Acts and you just get to this guy, Joseph, who they later renamed Barnabas, you have this little like one-liner. Do you see it? Joseph, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, he sold a field and owned, he, that he owned and brought the money and put it at, his, at the apostles' feet. If you're just reading through it, you're like, what is so important about Joe? Joe here? Like, why do we have this story? Well, we have it there to contrast what happens next. Here comes the hypocrites. Now, a man named Ananias, chapter 5, verse 1, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. We got to be really clear, really quickly about the transgression. What are they, what, what's going wrong here? It is not that they were mandated to give all their money to the church. It's like really clear in verse four, uh, Peter like names it. He says, wait a second, didn't this belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What's serious here? It's not that they were supposed to give all the money. What's going on here is that Ananias and Sapphira want the reputation that Barnabas is getting, the reputation of a radically generous person, and they also want some of their money. They want the prestige that comes with radical generosity but without the sacrifice. And ultimately, that very simple, those few lines reveal where their heart's at. Like, what do they actually want? They want the approval of this cool community that's like sh being shaped. And that's hypocrisy. Hypocrites care more about how they appear and how they belong than like who they really are. And we spent some time in the Beatitudes, remember? That wasn't that long ago. And Jesus like slows down, uh, well, in the Sermon on the Mount after the Beatitudes, slows down and, and like talks about the hypocrite. If you remember in Matthew 6, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do, that they may be praised by others. Jesus is very forward. This is why they do it, that they may be praised. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen. That's the reason. When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen. And each time he says, truly I say to you, they've received their reward in full. 
And he's just saying they got, they got what they want. They've been seen. And be careful, he's not saying if you're seen doing a good thing, you forfeit your reward. If that were true, then poor Joseph here, Barnabas, he's in trouble because for like 2,000 years we've been reading this story that, oh, he sold. That's not the point. It's not that you, that you can't be seen. The danger is that if you do it so that others see you, so that others can see you. I'm going to get into the nuance of how crafty this can be. Hypocrisy is like intelligent AI that continues to like learn how the community is morphing and what's accepted. Like to some degree, when I posted that, that uh, picture like five or six years ago, it wasn't the, like, now that wouldn't be that crazy. It is not that novel for people to like display their mess. It is a form of getting people to connect with you. John Stark talks about the nuances in a really brilliant book called The Secret Place of Thunder, which is a great title for a book. The nuances of this in the church. He says, this is an extraordinary temptation. Uh, This is an ordinary one, uh, this temptation to hypocrisy. Not an extraordinary one. Beware of performing your faith before others where you can be seen. Because the longer you are in faith communities, the more you learn what it looks like to be humble. You figure it out. What facial expression to make? Next slide. How to carry yourself. What words to say. How to be seen without looking like you want to be seen. The longer you are a Christian, the more believable you can be. You get good at it. So to be clear, there's like hypocrisy has at least two faces. You can put that, that next slide. So I drew it up this way. This is just me. This might not be entirely accurate, but it has at least two faces. You have classic hypocrisy on the left, which is just this false piety. That's just classic hypocrisy. It's like, I want them to think I'm amazing. That's false, posit- false piety. But then you've heard us talk about in different settings, this new version, this new face this false vulnerability or vulnerability. This vulnerability that has learned what it looks like to be humble. False piety says, I've got it all together. I'm worthy of being watched and followed. Vulnerability says, I don't have it all together. See, I'm a mess. But you let people in to a mess to gain Connection, but you don't let them into the true hidden places. That's vulnerability. It's two ways of hiding. We either don't let anyone in or we let people in, but not to the hidden stuff. Chuck DeGroat, and we talked about this when we were in, uh, I don't know if you remember when we were in the book of Daniel, we had a little bit of like an aside on like narcissism and, and, uh, and communities that kind of allow for this kind of behavior. And a guy named Chuck DeGroat, Chuck DeGroat a pastor uh, who's written really well on this subject, including a book called When Narcissism Comes to the Church, he writes this about this, about this vulnerability. This is what increasingly frightens me. The epidemic of vulnerability, pastors and leaders and many others, this is not this is for all of us, who are emotionally intelligent enough to share a general messiness about their lives, 
often in broad strokes, admitting weakness and need, but who are radically out of touch with their true selves. They've dressed up the false self in a new garment, the garment of faux vulnerability. With the accompanying gospel vocabulary of weakness, need, brokenness, dependence, idolatry, and more. And they may be more dangerous than pastors who simply don't care about living vulnerably. When a twisted form of vulnerability is used in service of a spiritual false self, congregations are thrown into painful, often contentious seasons of gossip, opposition, choosing sides, and living in trauma and confusion. So we're all prone to hypocrisy. You can throw that slide back up. It just might be one, you might be more better at one of these, one of these versions. What's my go-to? Keeping it all together or curating your mess? And back to our text. The enemy is aware. He's aware of this AI feature. Did you notice the enemy, Satan, makes an appearance? He's mentioned in this chapter. We saw in the previous chapter last week that the church, this infant church is being attacked from the outside and they did well. They prayed for boldness. The enemy's not done and, and after attacking from the outside, he attacks from within. It's a subtle attack from within. Satan gives Ananias this idea. This church that you see, this beautiful Everything in common, one mind, one heart church, it wouldn't be that hard to just fake it. I remember when I was little, when I was probably seven or eight years old, my little brother, who's, uh, who's at the time three, like four or five years old, three years younger than me, who uh, my friend from Eastern Europe here happens to know, he came to me one day when I was practicing piano. Now we had a rule that when you get home from school, you have to practice piano before you do the other things. That was just the standard rule. He didn't have to do it yet, he's like four years old. I'm seven, I'm practicing piano. And I remember him coming to me and he's like, hey, let's, let's go play. And I was like, I've only been practicing for five minutes. I gotta practice for 25 more minutes. And he just stood there, he's like four years old. And he's looking at me. And then he gets this like idea in his head, he goes, hey Dawson, I have an idea. Why don't you go tell mom that you've already practiced for 30 minutes? He thought he invented the concept of lying. This little four-year-old is like, just go tell her you've done it. I, I give him, I, I bring that up every once in a while, this his invention of lying. Satan, the enemy, is similar in that he, he hasn't come up with anything new in the last two millennia. He's the father of lies and he just plays that card. And he knows it can work. He knows that to tempt us to say, hey, this awesome thing that is happening in, in your missional community. Hey, the way Soma is paying attention to the spirit in this season and people are like 
talking about listening and prophetic words, you know you could be a part of that if you take a shortcut. You know that you could be a part of it if you, if you fake it. And he's deceptive because it's not like we're like, yeah, I'll fake it. We, we are self-deceptive in that. There's a warning. The father of lies has no new cards to play. He just says, pretend like, you've, like you have it. Pretend like you, you've got it together. Curate that mess. Keep hidden what is hidden. Don't show up fully. Give them just enough to say, wow, she's so just honest. But don't go all the way. So perhaps some of you, uh, when we've been talking about hypocrisy here for 25 something minutes, perhaps some of you, like the spirit has been bringing bringing up an area of your life that you know is the place you wanna keep hidden. Pay attention to that. What do we do when this happens? Who are we deceiving? Peter makes it really clear. You've not lied just to human beings. You've lied to God. What is that? Lying to ourselves, to human beings, to God. It's, it's self-sabotage. It's spiritual self-destruction. And it's self-destruction that impacts communities. What does God want from us? That's a really good question, by the way. We've asked, we've asked it a few times. What does God want from us? I'll tell you what God has no interest in, and that's us playing the part in sincere worship. What does God want from us? He just wants this posture. Like, I need help? Help. It's a miserable existence pretending we don't need help. It's a miserable existence playing the part where I'm trying to be bigger than I am. It's just miserable. Why did they die? We have to ask that question when you read they died. They died because God really cares about this. He really cares about people and he really cares about his church. One commentator said, the, said this, the way Ananias and Sapphira attempted to reach their goals was so dramatically opposed to the whole thrust of the gospel. What they did was so dramatically opposed to the nature of the gospel that to allow it to go unchallenged would have set the entire mission of the church like off course. And God s- stopped it. This story resembles the story of Achan in the Old Testament, if, if you remember that from the book of Joshua, and, and no problem if you haven't. But the Israelites enter into the promised land. Enter in the promised land, like God's given them the promised land, and Achan goes into Jericho and takes money he wasn't supposed to take, right after God gave them the promised land. That was when God, that was the birth of the nation of Israel, Now we're reading the story of the birth of the church. In both instances, God says, no, this is not what it's like to be my people. This is not what I am like. In verse 11, the last verse we read says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Great fear. 
Like, no kidding, Sherlock. Yeah, two people just died. So point three, hope for hypocrites. This will be brief, briefer. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Fear, as you know, we talk about emotions. If processed in a healthy way, they're gifts. And what is fear? Fear is the gift that leads us to wisdom. This, health, this is a gift of fear. At the an origin of the church, God is giving this healthy gift of fear. And I want to talk about a few implications for us on a corporate kind of level, like for us, and then kind of on a personal level. Corporate, corporate implications. And here's another like Dawson list. This isn't, this isn't like Acts 5. This is Dawson list out of this. One thing we need to remember as we are part of churches where hypocrisy takes place and where leaders pull Ananias and Sapphira moves is that we are wounded in unhealthy communities and we are healed in healthy communities. So if you've been wounded by people whose hidden lives slowly wreaked havoc around them, there's hope. You can be healed in healthier communities. There is healing for those wounded by hypocrites. Some of us, some of you, we've experienced real hurt. There is more healing to be had in healthy communities. Second, communities, churches, can either be the kind of church that kills hypocrisy or breeds it. A church that like exiles it or, or breeds it. And I guess the challenge for us is, are our communities, are our missional communities, is your community, the people that you are in community with, are you creating a safe place for what's hidden to come to the light? Or are you a part of perpetuating a type of environment where people are like, yeah, there's no way I'm gonna let this come out? Are we the kind of community also where hypocrites can't keep getting away with it? And again, we talked about this when we were talking about narcissism a few months ago, back in our Daniel series. You remember, you can't confront narcissists. Remember that? You also, it's really hard to confront Hypocrites, if, if what's hidden is like hidden to themselves. It doesn't really work. You just say, hey, I think you might be doing this. And they're like, oh, well, I'm not. No, I'm not. But here's the hope. While you can't confront a narcissist or a hypocrite, you can change the community that harbors them. And eventually, it just works. Communities either heal those people or they spit them out. And both are good options. People get healed if they have hidden lives and say, I want to bring this forward. Or they can't handle it. And that's a good thing. Soma, may we be a community that heals hypocrites. Chap uh, chapter three. Oof, that'd be scary. Um, point three. This is in some way about church discipline. And church discipline is 
kind. It is, a, it is a kind thing to do. Now, obviously, it can be extremely abused and has been. But at its core, it's the job of people in leadership of a church to shepherd those who are part of it and to protect those who are bringing harm. I could say a lot more on that, but I'm going to move on to four. Other implication is practice appropriate vulnerability. Appropriate vulnerability is something that, that we have to learn together because someone in a hidden life can pendulum swing and just pour their mess out in inappropriate spaces. <laughs> and it's okay, we gotta be a gracious church. I think some of the most gracious leaders are those that can take somebody who's in the middle of a whole mess and pours way too much out in spaces where people, like there's not the dynamic in this room right now for if you pour out the whole mess for, for you to get an appropriate response. And so it's a leader's job to like reparent people, to recognize, okay, you need to find safe place for this, safe place for this, and safe place for this. But the goal is that there's no safe place for hidden things to say hidden. But we have to learn what it means to share appropriately. So that's some corporate learnings. And I'm so thankful. This is one of the safest communities, not one. For me, it's the safest community of Jesus as far as I've ever been a part of. It is a joy to be a member of this church. But I want us to continue to have this vision that Jesus gives us in Matthew 6 that we get in Acts 4 and 5 that says, it is, it is, it is kind to be a place where hidden things come to the light and are treated gently, but when hardness of heart is there, it can't go on forever. Personal implications, because at the end, this passage is absolutely about this question, about the Ananias and Sapphira in each of us. We do this. We do what they did. We hide for the sake of gain. So personal confession, but appropriate for this room. Don't worry, I'm not gonna go into deep stuff that would make you feel uncomfortable. But I will say, as someone who is a high performer and a high achiever, I don't believe we're all created equal in our capacity for hypocrisy. I have a high capacity for hypocrisy. My heart is self-deceiving for a lot of reasons. It goes back to family of origin. It goes back to my vocation. But I have a high capacity to keep things hidden, either to pretend that I have things together more than I do, the whole, the classic hypocrisy or the vulnerability like moves. And it is true that the heart is deceitful above all things. But I wanna tell you my experience over the last 16 years of following Jesus and even especially over the last three years of following Jesus in this community, there's hope for hypocritical hearts to find healing. If you have people who are safe, but who are committed to the clarity of Jesus' message, you can find healing for the hypocritical heart that you don't even want to admit, for the hidden parts that you don't want to even go to. 
There's hope for the hypocrites, but first do with me a gentle audit, but a serious audit. Take a moment with me. In what ways do you practice a hidden life, a hiding life? In what ways do you use spirituality as a means to get church brownie points? Maybe specifically like Ananias and Sapphira, it's, it's like around resources, the way you use your money. In what ways are you maybe hypocritical in putting up a front about the state of your marriage or relationship? In what ways do you present yourself as more than you really are bigger than you are for the sake of gaining someone's approval? In what ways are you in denial about the way you cope? Addictions, whether that be food, pornography, alcohol, dopamine binging. And maybe just as, you, as those things come to mind, ask yourself, this is a hard question. Is this like a short-term thing for me or has this been a long-term thing for me? Because I want to tell you, if this is like, if you've often, the hypocrisy of our lives has just become a part of our lives because it's been there for so long that we can't imagine redemption. But there is hope for hypocrites. So part of this is just being honest with ourselves. Friedrich Beekner says it this way, it's important to tell, at least from time to time, the secret of who we truly and fully are, even if we tell it only to ourselves. Because otherwise we run the risk of losing track of who we truly and fully are, and little by little come to accept instead the highly edited version which we put forth in hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. We're gonna end with some really bad news and really good news. You ha if you read your Bibles well, if you read this passage well, there's one like really clear conclusion. And that is that hypocrites deserve to die. They deserve death. God doesn't bless hypocrisy. He condemns it. Hypocrites deserve to die. But like I said, there is hope for the hypocrites. And here's the thing. Did you, did you know, this, this hit me like five or six years ago when I was first looking at this passage uh, to teach on it. And I just realized like, did, did you know that a repentant hypocrite doesn't exist? It's in the same category as like Bigfoot and unicorns. It's a myth. A repentant hypocrite does not exist. Do you know why? Because a hypocrite over here, non-repentant, deserving to die, as soon as that person repents, they instantly transform into something else entirely. And that is simply a normal needy sinner, a normal needy sinner. And the church is full of normal needy sinners. In fact, it's required for membership. 
normal, needy sinners. The church is not a place for hypocrites. The spirit won't have it, but it is a place for normal, needy sinners like you and me to find the washing of Jesus over these hidden areas of our life. We have the power to make it look like we're okay, but we do not have the power to make ourselves okay, do we? We, can f- we have the faking power, but we do not have the remaking power. And as I was thinking about this, praying for like a picture around this, I feel like hypocrisy is just like this cage. If there's hidden areas of our life, it's like we're trapped in this cage that we are so fearful of coming out of. And every time we see the window of like, maybe I'll come out, that, that fear just ends up nailing another nail into that window. Hypocrisy cages us. But the beauty of what happens when a, when a hypocrite becomes just a normal needy sinner before Jesus who redeems normal needy sinners, it's that cage instantly is just like a little, a little house made out of matches that just dissolves. And you don't have to look for a window. You can come completely clean into an appropriate safe space and say, I need Jesus' help. I'm gonna ask Alex and the rest of the band to come up. We're gonna respond. There was, uh, we've talked over the last few weeks about different moves of God, revival or renewal gone viral. There's an East African revival about 100 years ago. Confession and conviction are always marks of the move of the Spirit. Like never do you get anything without confession and conviction. And in East Africa, in the 20s and 30s, the last century, they had this mantra where they said, may may the walls be torn from our closed heart houses. May we be fully known appropriately. 